following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. It's good to be back. Missed you guys while we were gone. Always good to get away, but good to come home too. If you will, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm not going to have any slides today, so I do want everyone to open a Bible, please. There's ones in the seat in front of you. If you do not have one, that's page number 1014. If you have been a part of Cornerstone for any length of time, you know how uh, unusual it is for me to go off script and to go uh, change plans that I have laid out in advance. I was originally going to be preaching in Mark chapter 10 today. It's what the bulletin says, but I made a very last minute decision to do otherwise. Uh, We're going to have a little bit of a family talk this morning, but we're going to be in 1 Peter 2. We're not going to be there until kind of closer to the end, but we want to read this first and hold your place there until we get back to it. We're going to be reading verses 9 to 17. It says in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, and we ask that, I ask specifically that you speak through your word and through your spirit to us this morning. Please downplay my words and thoughts. There are things that I have written or thought here this morning that do not genuinely reflect your heart. May I pass over them, forget them, not say them. For the things that are generally, genuinely reflective of your heart, may they be emphasized. I pray for all of us that Our first and primary commitment will be to you, to your word, to your truth, and that in all things we live our lives, both in the context of this church amongst each other, the brothers, as well as in this world, in such a way that it brings glory to you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Well, I'm uh, doing something, as I already said, a little different today. I'm kind of going off script script here for a Sunday, pushing everything back, because I felt that there was a need to talk with us as a church family about recent events. I was thinking back over the last 
nearly eight years now of preaching, and I believe in the past eight years there have only been three times that I have ever uh, changed my plans on a Sunday to speak to current circumstances or events. The first two came back to back in the fall of 2008 as we were getting close to the uh, presidential election of that time. At the same time, the economy was collapsing, if you remember that. And at that time, I was hearing a lot of fear from people, okay? Cornerstone people, others, I'm reading a lot of things, people saying stuff about, oh, the sky is falling, this is happening. And it just got to the point that I didn't feel like I could let it pass anymore. I needed to address it, and so I did. I preached two messages in October of 2008. One was on the economic crisis because I was wanting to make the point that stuff is not our God and our hope and our security is not found in money and in possessions and in our retirement accounts, et cetera, and we needed to be reminded of that at that point. And the second was on politics, how our hope is not in the government. It doesn't matter which party wins. It doesn't matter what happens. This world was never going to be changed by laws and policies and presidents and others, et cetera. So those were the first two. The third response message, if I could call them that, came in December of 2012, right after the Newtown, Connecticut shootings, um, when that guy, I think his name was Adam Lanza, went into that elementary school there, Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, and he killed the 20 kids and the six uh, adults that were in there. And, you know, it's one of those moments, for some reason, of all of them that stood out to me, probably because it was kids and I'm a parent, so I instantly connect more to that. But I was driving home from North, I was driving back home, I had dropped my mom off in North Carolina, and I'm listening to to public radio, and and they break in with the news, and I remember that. I remember how I felt. I remember thinking about it, and it had come right on the heels of several other big shootings. If you remember that, I think there was that one in in Colorado at the movie theater, and I know there was that one in Arizona where Gabby uh, Giffords got shot. Um, So it just had been a bunch in a row, and it was December. It was Christmas, but we kind of preempted what the plan was, and I, I just spoke from that passage there in Matthew where Herod kills all the children in Bethlehem just about the the shootings, and I haven't spoken on another shooting since. In fact, this week, it hit me a little bit how far my mind has come since then, because when I first heard about the Charleston shootings, you want to know what my honest first response was? It was, okay, good, it was only nine. (laughs) And it wasn't for like two days, until two days had passed, that I thought, wait a minute, what has happened? (laughs) What has happened to our society? What has happened to me that my first response was, oh good, it's just nine, as if now I can rank them by casualty numbers. Like, it just is a sad, it was a sad commentary, perhaps on our society and maybe on my heart as well, when I first heard that, and we should probably speak about it every time, but I feel like every Sunday now would be taken up by it. But that was the third response message. The fourth one is going to be today regarding Friday's decision by the Supreme Court regarding what is commonly referred to as same-sex marriage. And I wasn't home when the uh, news first broke, I was out. And as I'm driving home, I'm thinking about it and just kind of playing it out in my mind. I've been thinking about it all week, waiting for the announcement. And so I decided that when I got home, I was going to do something. I walked in, and, and Nathaniel and Hannah are playing iPod on their iPods. Um, so I told them to turn it off. And we all sat down on the couch, and I turned on CNN, and for the next 30 minutes or so, we watched. I wanted them to see it. I wanted them to sit there and listen to the reporting, listen to the, to the commentary, listen to the pundits and all the people who were being kind of, I wanted them to see the, the celebrations that were going on, which was what CNN is showing at this point, and I, I wanted them to remember that moment, that day. I don't know that they will, they're 12 and 10, but 
I wanted to at least give them the opportunity. And after about 30 minutes or so of us watching this, I muted it, and we took about another 30 minutes to an hour to talk about it. Because as a father, I wanted to help my children. There's no point hiding it from our children, parents. I'm, I'm, I mean, you have to make the decision of when you're going to address it, et cetera, but no point hiding it. I wanted them to have or to view it and process it as biblically as they could, and I felt that that was my responsibility. And so I sat them down to do that, and then we prayed together for our nation, for ourselves, for believers around the world. Well, today, I don't often play like the pastor card where I'm like, I'm going I'm to put on the pastor hat and come down kind of like that. Uh, I'm playing it today. I want to sit you down. Good job. Okay? You're all sat down. I want to sit you guys down and talk with you also about what has happened in order to help you understand and process it as biblically as you can. I will not pretend that this is going to be my most polished sermon ever, as I have put it together rather quickly uh, since Friday afternoon, but hopefully God will help me to speak truth to you and help you understand it as best you can. I am going to sort of base my initial comments, and we're going to come to 1 Peter at the end of this, but I wanted to make some comments sort of by way of introduction, so to speak, but just to kind of frame out the thought. Uh, in line with the title of Al Mohler's uh, response, printed response to Friday's decision, if you don't know who Al Mohler is, he is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and his article was titled, Everything Has Changed and Nothing Has Changed. And I think that there is probably no better way for us to view this than through that particular lens, through those words right there. Because both statements are true at the same time. Everything has changed. And I'm going to give you two reasons why I'm saying that everything has changed. Number one, what we saw on Friday was an official redefinition of marriage. Now, marriage has not truly been redefined. I want us all to be very clear on that because only one person gets to define marriage, and that's God himself. And he has defined it as one man and one woman for life. So it, it hasn't truly been redefined, and whenever from this point forward we talk about this subject, I know we won't always be so precise in our language, but we should probably be precise uh, more so than we have been in the past and say that this thing that is commonly known as same-sex marriage, it's not really marriage, but it has officially been redefined in terms of our government. And you just stop and you ask the question, how did, how did we get here? Well, a year ago now, we took a Sunday evening, one of our core seminars, and I addressed that very point. And if I had time this morning, I would reteach that, but I don't. That was a two-hour session where I just tried to trace the worldview of what has brought us to this point. And I will give you just the foundational component because this is the root of it all in the end. It is godlessness. And, and you've got to hold all these thoughts until I get them all out together and then you'll, you'll put them together. But I want you to understand that this is where the godlessness of our society has led. And it is not the pinnacle of the godlessness of our society that this decision on Friday, it's just one of many things. And other things are going to come. Um, there is no question in my mind, and I'm saying some of these things to you almost like a dad. Understand that. Again, this is different today than a normal Sunday. There is no question in my mind that other things are going to come next. I don't know what. I don't know when. But they're coming. 
I don't know how we continue to criminalize things like prostitution or polygamy or incest or many other things that have in the past been viewed as sinful and criminal, but things will come. In fact, I don't even know exactly how our American concept of the freedom to practice and proclaim our faith will survive in this new world order. And I don't say that trying to play the prophet or trying to fear monger at all. I'm just acknowledging true statements. I don't know what it means. I just know that godlessness always leads to evil and to problems. Number two, everything has changed. It's because in this particular case, this particular sin has been institutionalized in our nation and society. And that's what's changed in this. It, homosexuality is not new, okay? <laughs> it was going to be practiced both before and after Friday, regardless of the decision. You understand that? It's not new in American history. It's not new in world history. It's not even new that it's being celebrated and, and, and approved of. Okay, that's not new either. That would have continued regardless. But what we have here in this particular case is the institutionalization of sin. It's what Paul talks about here in Romans 1, and I didn't have you turn here, though you certainly can just listen. It's the last sentence that I really wanted to get to, but it's helpful to read it all because it definitely uh, is what we have seen, I think, over the last hundred years, whatever, in American society. In verse 18, Paul writes that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, not just homosexuality. I'm going to make that point in a minute as well. It's all of it. Who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy, creeping things. What's this? Godlessness. They knew him, but they suppressed it. Godlessness. So what did that lead to? Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up. In the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So God gives them up to just general sexual immorality. Verse 26, for this reason, God gives them up a second time to dishonorable passions for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up a third time now to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. So it's getting bigger and broader. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, 
insolent, haughty, boastful inventors of evil, as if the evils listed here aren't sufficient. They're inventing new ones. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. And here's the the phrase that stood out to me. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is where we are coming and have come to some extent. And folks, the only response to this is that we should feel sorrow. We should feel sorrow, like genuine sorrow. It's not that this is the pinnacle. I'm, I'm trying to make, and again, I'm going to make that point clear in a moment. I'm just trying to help you understand that, that the institutionalization of sin should bring sorrow to the hearts of every believer in this nation. Everything has changed. And yet, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. And I'll give you four reasons why nothing has changed, and then we'll get into 1 Peter chapter 2. Nothing has changed, number one, because God is still sovereign. He was sovereign before Friday. He was sovereign after Friday. Nothing has happened outside of his plan, knowledge. No no one is doing anything that's taking God by surprise. So so in that sense, we have no reason to fear. And some of you are fearful. Some of you are, are worried. Some of you have thought through, you're listening to people who are who are just promoting fear, and I'm telling you, that is a sinful response on your part. God is still sovereign. He was sovereign before, he's sovereign now. Number two, Jesus is still risen. No court order puts him back in the grave, and that means he's still king of all. So it doesn't matter what one leader says, there is a greater leader over all who, who in the end, wins, okay? His kingdom is coming. It is coming. It's coming now, it's going to continue to come. One day it will come in its fullness, and he will make all things right, all things good. Not just this one thing that we're talking about this morning, but all things. He is still risen. Number three, and it's kind of three things in one, sorry. But the gospel is still the gospel. Truth is still truth, and sin is still sin. That did not change. The gospel is still the gospel, the good news that we can be made right with God through God's own sacrifice of his son for us is still the greatest and only hope this world has. That did not change. It is still the power of God to salvation. The legislation is still not our savior. This government is not our savior. Jesus is still the only savior. And his truth is still truth, whether you like it or not, whether anyone likes it or not. You can vote all day long that 2 plus 2 equals 5, it still equals 4. Truth is still truth, and sin is still sin. And we cannot hesitate or pull back at all in our willingness to call a spade a spade. We can do that with love, and we're going to see that here in a moment, but, but gospel is gospel, truth is truth, and sin is sin. Nothing has changed there. Number four, we are still ambassadors for Christ proclaiming his truth. We are still ministers of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as whatever you do. Our vision, our purpose, our mission, nothing there has changed. (laughs) Friday's decision affects none of that for us. And so, with these things kind of as like, I don't know if you call them introductory thoughts or what they are, just thoughts in general, I want to give you six exhortations here, most of them from 1 Peter chapter 2, so go ahead and open back up there now. Six exhortations 
that I think are appropriate. And, I, and I've been listening as much as I can over the last uh, day and a half. I've been trying to do a little bit of reading, at least, in how people are responding. I, don't, I haven't had a chance to talk to really any of you about this, so I don't know where your hearts are specifically, but I'm going to go off of what I'm seeing generally and see where stuff lands. Six exhortations. Number one, remember that this country is not our true country, and this nation is not our true nation. Here in 1 Peter chapter 2, I want you to look at verse 9. He says to them, and they're going through some similar problems. It's not exact, but it's pretty close, actually. He says to them, remember, you are a chosen race. There's been a lot of conversation about race in this country over the last year. I say that we should all stop talking about it, we as Christians. And whenever you have to check a box on a form of what race you are, when they have the one that other, let's start checking other and put chosen. Okay? Because that race isn't based on your skin color. It's not based on your ethnicity, your nation of origin, or anything else. It's based on the fact that the God of the universe, in grace and mercy, chose you to be his child and sacrificed his son to make that so. That's the race we are now as believers. We're, we're not defined by skin color and ethnicity and the things that the world wants to define by. We are a chosen race. Because of that, we are now a royal priesthood, children of the king in direct uh, contact with God himself. I love that term. We are a holy nation. We, believers, we are a nation. We're not a, a nation of boundaries and laws and governments. There is a government, a governor, a king. That's our nation. It's a kingdom with a king who rules over all and will rule over all and to whom one day all will bow. We are a people, he says, for his own possession. We belong to God. And all of these things are true, he says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once, he says, you were not a people. We were nothing. Now, because of what Jesus has done, we are God's people. You look down in verse 11, you see another example of this. He, he, he refers to us with these two terms here in verse 11. Based on these truths in verse 9, he says then, you are sojourners and exiles. You know what that, you know what that means? A sojourner is a traveler. Someone who's on a journey, and they're not home. They're, they're, they're like geobatching it, right? They're out in a, they're out in a, a country somewhere, and they're there, by, but, but they're not home, and they know they're going home. They're just sojourning there. They're like the exile who's not in his home but is longing to be there. In a similar way, we as believers, as God's own people, we are like sojourners and exiles in this world. And so while we are Americans by nationality, we are not of this nation. We are not of this country. We have a better one coming, a perfect one, unlike anything this world has ever seen. Number two, I would exhort you to keep sin as a whole in its proper perspective. To keep sin as a whole in its proper perspective, because one of the tendencies here, and I'm trying to avoid it as best I can today, though I am emphasizing to a degree one, is that we make this one sin of homosexuality the pinnacle of all sin. And yet I note here in 1 Peter 2 that in verse 9, for example, he tells us that, that God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Not just some darkness, not just one particular aspect of darkness. 
all of it, okay? All the darkness. He tells us again there uh, in verse 11 that we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh, not just one of the passions of the flesh. And you hear the word passion, you instantly think of sexual things, but it's just like, like the, the things the flesh wants, the desires of the flesh. He doesn't say just abstain from one of them, from all of them. So, so let's keep sin as a whole in its proper perspective that in the end, folks, homosexuality is not the worst of all sins. It is a sin, but it is not the worst of all sins. I, Jamie and I have been thinking and talking about this uh, since Friday. One of the passages, and she should be in here. She gets most of the credit for today, uh, as normal. Um, one of the, the passages of Scripture that has kept coming to our minds is this one in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul says this, and listen very carefully. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, and notice he doesn't specify what form of sexual immorality or impurity. He just says any form of it. Anyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is... Can anyone fill in the blank there? Want to take a guess? How about this? Covetous. Anyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He says it again in Colossians 3. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And there's a part of me that wonders, why are Christians so bent out of shape about a sin which maybe 3 to 6% of the U.S. population is committing, when, and we're not been out of shape at all about a sin that 100% of the U.S. population is committing, including every one of us in this room most likely, and that's the sin of covetousness. Where's the outcry for that? It doesn't happen. Where's the outcry when someone wants a bigger house and a better house? Not because of, of some real genuine need, just because they want it, because they want the nicer car, the nicer stuff, the nicer clothes, the bigger bank accounts, and the nicer uh, retirement. Where's the outcry then, Christians? You think we come across as hypocritical? I think we do. I'm not justifying homosexuality. It's a sin. I'm just saying to us, why are we so bent out of shape about this one when all of us in here are equally guilty of this other thing that Paul's putting on the same level? And, and just in case, I'm going to give away some of my thunder for next Sunday, but I'm okay with it. I'm in the mood. Uh, just in case you're sitting here thinking, well, thankfully, I'm not like one of the wealthy people who really have to deal with that. If you were sitting in this room this morning, you are filthy rich by any standard of wealth this world has ever known. We have this tendency to define the wealthy as anyone better off than us. I'm telling you today, if you are in here, I don't care how much money you have or don't have. If you are in this room, you are more wealthy than the vast, 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 vast majority of people throughout the history of this earth. So don't try to play the card that that doesn't apply to you. It's every one of us, okay? It's not the worst sin. It simply is a sin, and we need to keep sin as a whole in its proper perspective. So if we're going to rail against this thing, you better pick some other bites too. 
Speak truth on all of them. Don't just pick one. Speak it on all of them. Let's be honest. Otherwise, we lose credibility in this fight. Number three, third exhortation. We should live in such a way as to glorify God and shame those who speak or stand against him. We should live in such a way as to glorify God and shame those who speak or stand against him. Paul, uh, Peter, excuse me, makes this point here. He, he, and, and I'm going to kind of break this into three parts. He, he gives this first when he tells us to pursue personal holiness, 1 Peter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And if there was a, a, a couple words here to underline, it's the words wage war. In Greek, that's one word, but the translators are trying to help you understand. This isn't like a one-and-done battle. This isn't like a, a special operations drop-in in the night do their thing and get out. This is a campaign. This is like, bring the tanks, bring the army, bring the navy, bring the air force, bring them all, we're going to be here a while kind of war. And this is what he says the passions of the flesh are doing to our soul. They are waging war. It is a long-term campaign against our soul. Therefore, like sojourners and exiles, we need to abstain from those passions. To walk away from them, to pursue personal holiness. How can we we fight these battles on the outside when we're losing them on the end. Next, he says, pursue public holiness, if I could use such a phrase. In verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice those last words. They're not going to like just see your good deeds and be like, oh, never mind, we can't talk about them. No, but one day when they stand before God, they will glorify him for how you've lived. They won't be able to speak against you then. But he's just simply saying, listen, you're, you're in this fight, you're in this world, you, can't, you could try to remove yourself from it, but that, I think, would be unbiblical as well. So, so while you're in there, while you're living amongst the Gentiles, the unbelievers, live your life in an honorable way so that even when they do this, <laughs> it's not going to work. It, in a moment, you're going to see a similar comment in verse 15, but here's the third part of this. Pursue personal holiness, public holiness. Number three, you do it by respecting the governing authorities. And I've seen this one already, personally. He says in verse 13, in the midst of this problem that the, the church there is dealing with, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake. Not for the sake of the, the rulers, but for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Why? For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, free from sin, free in Christ. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. What's he saying? He's saying as much as we can, at least in this world, you, you honor and respect the authorities God has put above you. For the Lord's sake, you do it. For the Lord's sake, you do it. And I've already heard Christians railing against the president, railing against, I mean, vitriol, just coming out against the Supreme Court, and I'm telling you, that is sin. Don't be a part of it. I probably have already been a part of it. Like when I first, my initial response, I'm being honest. I, and I'm like, no, no, no. This is, 
This is sinful. I mean, if they're telling me to disobey God, you always obey the highest authority. Always obey the highest authority. That's a principle that always works. You always obey the highest authority. But we do it respectfully. We're not going to be the people out there holding up the, the sign saying, kill the president, kill Congress, kill... Like, what Christian would ever do that? That does not in any way match what Peter is saying to them here. He says, honor everyone, everyone, homosexuals included, by the way. For those of you who are interacting with, with people in your work environment, family, etc., honor everyone. You're not treating them as like some wretched person. I, I mean, call a spade a spade, both places. You're an adulterer, you're a homosexual, you're both sinners before God, okay? Call it. But treat them both the same. Either reject everyone, in which case you're going to live a very lonely life in this world, or act like Jesus, um, who ate dinner with sinners regularly. Um, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You can't, you can't get away from these things. And so as we're living our lives, folks, we have to be living in light of of this third principle, which is on this other page, it says, live in such a way as to glorify God and shame those who, who stand or speak against him. This is our response. I don't need to hold up a sign. I need to live. Number four, and not to be all doom and gloom, but I'll say it because Peter does as well in just in the next chapter, be prepared to stand and suffer for your faith. Look at chapter three. Just turn over one page, or maybe not. Just look across the page. He's continuing, and again, they're in a very similar scenario to us, and he gets to chapter 3, and he's like, now listen, verse 13, who is there to harm you if you were zealous for what, what is good, which is a, should be generally true, right? That sh if you're doing what's good, generally you should be fine, okay? Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, or be troubled, but in your heart's Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it how? With gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then he goes on to give the example as who? Jesus, Jesus who suffered for good, who suffered for righteousness. He's our example. And I'm not, again, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be one of these fear mongers and they're out there already in force. I am just simply recognizing that a day may come when you have to choose. And the day to start thinking about that is not the day you have to choose. The day to start thinking about that is now. And I honestly am not, I'm not looking forward to any, like, future possible uh, um, problems, uh, persecution, etc. I certainly would never want such a thing, and yet I think it would be wonderful for the church. Because it would clarify a whole lot real quick. Because some of you sitting in this room, I love you, I don't know who you are, so I can say this, because I really would have no clue. Push came to shove, you'd be out the door. You're not really in. You're not all in with Jesus. Like, I don't know who you are. I would love to think it's none of you, but I'd be shocked in a room this size. There wouldn't be at least one, if not more. It would clarify a whole lot real quick if all of a sudden it cost you something 
to name the name of Christ, to stand for his truth, to stand for his word. And I, I would pray for you and for me and my family and your families that Jesus would solidify us in the faith and give us courage to stand in those days if those days come. I hope they don't, but be prepared to stand and suffer for your faith. Number five, I would exhort you to pray for mercy. And, and I have a touch of dramatic in me every now and then. So Friday when we sat down with the kids and we watched and then we talked, I said we prayed. And, and I, I'm not the person to be doing this, certainly, but I just, on behalf of our nation, <laughs> I ask God's forgiveness. Like, I'm not saying that to like, I, I'm just telling you that this is where we're at, I think. That it is time for his people to, to be on their knees. It has been time for a long time, but to be praying for God's mercy. Listen, <laughs> again, I'm hearing this already. People are like, well, this is it. God's going to bring his wrath down on us because of this. God could have brought his wrath down on us for a whole host of things. I mean, this is not, again, the end. This is not the pinnacle. Jamie was at Ashley. She had a great question. She's like, I wonder how Christians felt when Roe v. Wade came out in 73. I mean, you put them in comparison. I don't know what you think, but 30 million or 40 whatever million people murdered versus letting 3% or 5% or whatever the U.S. population commit acts of immorality. I don't know. Like, Which one do you think God has more right to bring his wrath down on us for? It's neither. It's both. It's all of the above and a lot more. Okay? I'm just simply saying to you, it is time for us to be begging. Should, we should have been doing it long ago. I, I get that. I'm just saying now we should be praying for mercy because as you see in Romans 1, and, that, and I don't know that it always works in that progression that, that Paul lays out there, but if it does, the next level is not pretty. All manner of evil, he says. Inventors of evil, ruthlessness, murder. I mean, it's, it is not pretty. And I just thought of Abraham and Lot, right? You know, here's Abraham begging God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of a few, and God is willing. He is willing, but even he has his limits. Six and finally, and then I'm done, is spread the gospel, because that is the only hope. It is. Don't write your congressman. <laughs> you can write him if you want, but I don't think it's going to do anything. Don't, don't call the president. Don't fill out a, your name on a petition. It's worthless. You want to do something? You want to, you, do you want to do something? Then go share the gospel with your neighbor, with your coworkers, with your family, with whoever. Because it's only as God changes hearts that anyone has any hope. I'm, it was never in the legal system. I, I, saw a, um, I saw a sign when we were watching CNN on Friday. When I saw it, I was like, oh man, like it's, it's ominous. It was in the shape of a shield, and it said, the Constitution is our shield against Bible-based discrimination. I'm telling you, the Constitution is not a shield against anything for us. You want to make a difference? You want to, you want to put hope in something? You put it in Jesus and in the gospel, and we go out and do what God had commanded us to do before Friday, what he's commanded us to do today, what he's commanding us to do every day. I don't know what God's going to do with the rest of it. I don't know what's going to come. I'm not being a fear monger. I'm not being a prophet. I am just wanting to speak to you as a friend, as a brother, as a pastor, 
and just challenge you with these thoughts, and I hope you will take them into consideration. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, I don't know if these words today have honored you in your heart. I don't know how you view these events, how you view our nation, how you even view us. It is so easy for us to fixate on this point, this, this issue, because it's current, it's big, it's loud, it's in our face. We're disappointed. We are sorrowful. We, we come now as your people gathered together in this church, and, and we would ask forgiveness for our country we have sinned against you, not just in this act, in this one decision. It's been a long chain of sins, one building on the other, from abandoning, abandoning you to the sexual immorality and sinfulness that's pervaded our nation for years, and now to this, and who knows what next. We are sorry. Forgive us. Have mercy on us, God. But help us in our feelings, and in our response to remember that you hate all sin, not just this one. And our nation has a lot more problems than this. We have a lot more problems than this. I have a lot more problems than this. Help us to, to be what Peter has called us to be here, to first the, those who pursue personal holiness, to abstain from these passions of the flesh which are campaigning against our souls. I have enough to keep me busy all day long just with what is in my own heart. I have my family. Lord, I pray that you will protect them, protect me from sin, change us to be more like Jesus. Please. I pray that you will help us pursue public holiness. Lord, that everyone in here who is a believer in you will live their lives in such a way that, that the Gentiles, the unbelievers around us, will only see us as honorable. That they can speak evil against us and what we stand for and believe, but even their words will be hypocritical as they come out of their mouths because we live lives that look like you. Lives of love, genuine love, not fake love that, that tries to make everyone happy. Genuine love, Christ-like love. So that their words, their accusations, they, they hold no merit. Forgive us for living lives where their accusations do have merit. Change us, please, as your people. Not just here at Cornerstone, but your people across this nation and around this world. Help us to, to not just focus on one sin, but to, to focus on them all. Covetousness, what an example. We'll see it next Sunday in clear detail. What, what sinfulness do we have rooted in us as a people disguised as this thing we call the American dream. Lord, I pray that you will give us a proper heart to respond to our leaders. Lord, I pray right now for President Obama, for Vice President Biden, for the Senate, for the House, for the justices, Lord, of the Supreme Court, for our state representatives, our, all of these people, they need you desperately. They need to to live their lives under your authority and rule. I pray your mercy on them. I pray that you open their eyes. Save them, Lord. Please forgive us for spouting curses against them. How can we pray for their salvation and curse them at the same time? These things ought not to be, you said. 
forgive us. May we be people who express honor and respect to our leaders as we interact with with those around us who are homosexual in this world and, and we are seeing them more and more. Help us to honor them, not for their sin, but because they are image bearers of you who are in need of the Savior, like us. Help us to to have gentleness and respect in our conversations, whether it's with them or with anyone who doesn't know you. It's not just them. It's all these people around us who are living their lives in rebellion. Lord, we just need a complete paradigm shift in our thinking. It's right, I think, and good for us to sorrow over Friday's events. But it is more important, far more important, that we take your full word into view and respond as biblically as we can, as consistently as we can, as unhypocritically as we can, and we know we're not perfect to all these things. And so may our hope rest in you this morning, not in our nation. May we look to this country, to this city whose builder and maker is someone far greater than any governor, any emperor this world has ever seen, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God himself, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.